a family meeting. You may have experienced those growing up, maybe you still do, where you gather in the living room or gather around a kitchen table or something like that because there's something facing the family that's really important that you need to talk about, you need to discuss, you need to make sure that the family is together on the same page and it's a place where people can voice their opinions, hopefully, and they're treasured and and acknowledged and uh, agreed upon together. And in a sense, the book of 1 John which we're walking through systematically together, kind of verse by verse, is a series of family meetings. And so John, as you recall, this is the fourth message of 11 in this series. John is now in his 80s to 90 years of age. And he is a a spiritual father, in a sense, to the people. Jesus has dramatically redirected his life. He He walked with Jesus. He served with Jesus probably when he was in his early 20s. And he has gone from being a loud mouth, arrogant, unloving individual into someone who's dramatically been reshaped by Jesus into a humble, gracious, compassionate, spiritual father who was still incredibly strong. They tried to kill him and they couldn't do it because he was such a tough guy. And in the family roundtable that we're going to talk about today, we're going to see him uh, talk about how he loves them. He's going to challenge them, he's going to warn them, and he's going to warn us. And so if you have your Bible or your device, I'm going to ask you to turn with me to the book of 1 John. And if you're not sure where it is, just use the table of contents. It's no problem, but it's way over to the back of the Bible, almost to the very end. And if you come to 1 or 2 Peter, a little bit further, if you come to Jude or Revelation, you've gone just a little too far. 1 John chapter 2, and we're going to be looking together in verses 12 through 17. And as I read this to you, I remind you that this is the word of the Lord. John writes, and he says, I write to you, dear children... Because your sins have been forgiven on account of his name, of Jesus' name. I write to you, fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, dear children, because you have known the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you've known him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of the Lord lives in you and you have overcome the evil one. Do not love the world or anything in the world. And if anyone loves the world, the love of the father is not in him. For everything in the world, the craving of sinful men, the lust of his eyes and the boasting of what he has and does comes not from the father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but the man who does the will of God lives forever. And so again, he uses this expression, dear dear children. And if you've read through the whole book, which I encourage you to do, you see him using it repeatedly two more times in these six verses that we just read. Dear children. And he is saying, I love you all. 
I'm for you. I want you to remember and understand clearly that God wants what is best for you, and so do I. And we've been singing about this today, that he is a good, good father that loves us, that wants what's best for us. And he begins the text then in verse 12 by saying, I want you to remember that our sin, the things that we deliberately choose to stand in opposition to God, the things we know we shouldn't do or the things we know we should do and we choose not to, the things that separate us from a God who does love us perfectly, but is also perfectly holy. These things can only be dealt with because of the sacrifice of Christ. There's nothing we can do to earn it. There's nothing we can do to gain God's favor. There's nothing we can pay, no amount of good works we can do. And he says this over and over again throughout the book. Forgiveness, relationship with God is predicated upon, is absolutely dependent upon what Jesus did on your behalf. You didn't earn it. You don't deserve it. It's a gift. And he said, I will sacrifice myself for you. I will die in your place. I will, the biblical term is, I will atone for the things that you've done. I'll pay for them in full. And because of this, when we accept this, when we allow this truth to change our life, Jesus becomes our complete victory. And God embraces us. And as we talked about, and I'll just reference quickly again, we then operate from our identity in Christ, not for it. It completely changes your life. When you understand who you are in Jesus, none of us are perfect, but we're forgiven. And we're an adopted, chosen child of the God that loves us because of what Jesus did for us. And so we operate from that identity in Christ, not for it. And this is the whole and central idea, really, of all of Scripture. It all points to the real Jesus. Okay. Now, most of Scripture is written to all of us. But occasionally in the scripture, as you're moving through it, it's very clear that the writer, the one that's under the inspiration of the spirit, is addressing a specific subset of, of, of people groups. And so, for example, at some points, um, you know, for example, Luke writes in the book of Acts chapter two, he writes to young women. It's very specifically. And then at other points, they'll write to older women or sometimes they'll write to just children. And sometimes they'll speak to parents. Verses 13 and 14, this takes place again. Only the categories this time are young men and older men, referred to as fathers in this text. Young men and older men. And in Scripture, as you're studying Scripture, and if you know anything about the time in history then, younger men are often pictured around the ages of 30, anywhere up to 40 years of age. And so what I'd like to do is I'd like to talk for a few minutes to the younger men. And I'm going to invite all the men that are 18 years of age to 39 years of age to stand for a few minutes. And I want to talk 
very directly to you. So if you're 18, you're a man through the age of 39, I'm going to get you to stand. And I have a few things to say to you. It says in verse 13, he goes, I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. And in verse 14, it says, I'm writing to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God lives in you and you have overcome the evil one. Now, strong can be a really good thing. Sometimes it can be not such a good thing at all. It depends on how you use it and what you do with it. And I'm going to challenge you young men, as John has done here, to be strong and to overcome with Jesus' help. It says in the latter part of verse 14, the evil one. And understand clearly, and I think you know this, the evil one has a plan to capture you, to destroy you, to try and overcome you. And in our culture, what are some of the evil one's plans to destroy you? Let me just mention a few. I was on Statistics Canada a few days ago, and it's interesting to me because it says in our world here in Canada, less and less men your age are working. Less and less men your age are even getting a driver's license. Less and less men your age are going to like trade school or college or university or, or getting some kind of training to prepare them for life. Interestingly enough, at the same time, the women that are your age are stepping up more and more and more in these areas than the young men are. And that's good for the ladies, good for you, awesome, great job. But this passage here in 1 John speaks specifically to the young men. More and more young men, all the studies show, are getting addicted to pornography. Now guys, I know some of you won't end up getting married. If God leads you that way, that's a good thing. That's actually a holy thing, if God leads you that way. But most of you have, or most of you will get married. Most of you have, or most of you will have a family someday. And the result of some of these attacks of the evil one that I've referenced here is that there's a bunch of young women that are struggling to find a young man that they can love and marry and serve the Lord together. And so more and more, and all the statistics show us this, more and more kids are being born out of wedlock. More and more kids are going to bed at night without a dad. And there are parts of our culture that encourage this kind of irresponsible behavior by young men. And so I want to challenge you like John is challenging here, to challenge that irresponsibility. To say, with Jesus' help, I'm going to shift my responsibilities. I'm going to be a man of God. I'm going to embrace the dignity that God calls you to. I'm going to be a man of God that worships God, that serves him, that pays my own bills, that carves my own path that God has for you. And I know that many, maybe all of you are already doing that. And I commend you for that. I am as your pastor and as an older man, I'm proud of you. But if you're not doing those kinds of things, 
And it could be that you had an earthly or a biological father that did not set a good example for you. I challenge you to say today is the day where my future changes. And with God's help, I am going to be a different man. That three generations from now, they will look back on your lineage and they will say, there was a day when great grandpa, you now as a young man, had the courage to give your life wholeheartedly to Jesus. To go out and get a job or get educated in some way, doesn't matter, however God has gifted you. To change the trajectory of your current life and your future family by letting Jesus change you. And if your calling in life is to get married, uh, that's a wonderful thing. Uh, or to be single, that's a very godly thing too from Scripture. But if your calling is to get married, to go out and to find a godly woman to date. And not to sleep with her with before marriage as, as the culture and in an evil way, invites us to do. To treat that young woman with honor. And to marry her, and to have a family with her, if that's what God leads you to do. And to be an example to your kids that your dad wasn't to you. And to break the pattern, and to overcome evil. That's what this passage is saying. Overcome evil. And you can do it. Because Jesus is with you. And so it might be time to put your phone down or put the Xbox away and say, I am going to pivot my future. And this scripture says when you are young, you are strong, you bring energy, you bring life, you bring courage, you bring vitality. I challenge you today to let Jesus channel that in your life. Now, I'd like to pray for you. Let's bow our heads for a minute. Father, we thank you so much for these young men. They are a gift from you. And they often get disparaged in the culture, and that's not the heart you have for them. And so I would pray in Jesus' name that the word of God would go deep in these young men. I pray, Lord God, that Jesus, you would change them utterly, that they would reflect you well, either as a single man, which has honor attached to that, or as a married man, as a husband, and if you if, lead this way, as a father. Change them, Lord Jesus. Forgive them where they need to be forgiven. Cleanse them. Renew their mind. Fill them with your spirit and let them be an individual that you use to make a different difference here on earth and for all eternity. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can have a seat. And now I'm going to... Yeah. Cool. <laughs> now I want to talk to the older men that are 40 years of age and up. Because it says in verses 13 and 14, it says, fathers who have known him from the beginning. This image, they've known, they've known Jesus for a while. And so I'm going to ask you to stand if you're 40 years of age, a man and, and older. And I'd like to talk to you for a few minutes. The word of God says that you are called to be fathers that reflect the heart of God the Father. 
You have an incredibly important role because there's some really bad images, sadly, of earthly fathers out there. And some people have trouble having a relationship with God because they've had a difficult relationship with their earthly father. You have a huge responsibility and calling. You are called to be fathers that reflect the heart of God the Father towards women, towards children, towards your grandchildren, to the young men that are here. And in UDAC, it is our goal to honor men who are 40 years of age and older because God honors you as he does in this passage. And we live in a culture, and you see this all the time, that's obsessed with youth. And there's nothing wrong with young people. I I have incredibly high hopes because of our young people. But we are obsessed in our culture with young people. And our culture tends to dishonor and disregard and disrespect older men and older women. And that is evil. That's That's from the pit. That's not good stuff. One of our credos here at this church is to be a multi generational church all the age groupings that God wants to come and to heal the fractured relationships between the generations as we serve and we work together. And so we honor older men. We thank you. And someone says, well, Scott, how do I honor? Because it tells us in scripture to honor our father and mother. How do you honor someone that's thoroughly dishonorable? And some of us here have people like that in our life. We give them what they need when they're dishonorable, what they need, not what they want. The young men have strength, this passage says. The presumption is that the older men have, or at least should have, wisdom. Because as older men, myself being one of them, we've experienced more of life. And our experiences with the Lord are incredibly valuable, both the positive ones and the negative ones where we've made inappropriate choices. And we'll get to that in a minute. We learn from the things that are positive and from the negative. And God calls us to take those things he showed us and taught us to use them to benefit and bless others. And so if you are an older man, for example, who is single and God has called you to be single and for his glory, you have been single. You have some important things to teach and to model in a culture that would try to get you to do things you shouldn't do. Or if you are married here as an older man or you are a dad or a grandfather and you have been faithful to your wife, you will be a great blessing and benefit to everyone else, especially the young and especially the newly married. And so if you're newly married, you want to get, get together with an older couple and say, what are the things God's taught you about how to have a healthy marriage or how to be a dad or how to be a mom? That's wise if you're a young person. If you're an older man who's gone through a divorce, I'm sorry for your heart. Or there's things that you've done perhaps that you really regret. I want to remind you what verse 12 says. It says you are not disqualified because of those things. 
You're not written off because of those things. Our God is the God of the second chance. He is the God of grace. And Jesus can forgive those things. When we own our stuff and humble ourselves and admit what we've done, he can forgive, he can cleanse, and he will. He can, and, and then he can take you and you can speak from your pain. You can speak from your hurt. You can speak from your forgiveness because you've been cleansed and you've been forgiven. Older men can talk and model practical things that we read about in scripture. They can talk about healthy relationships, what they look like. Maybe how they messed it up at times and what they learned from that. How to handle money in a God-honoring way. How to work and work hard for the Lord, it says in the book of Colossians. How to parent. How to have the right kind of friends. How to gather around you the kind of people that are going to point you more towards Jesus rather than away from him. All things that the Bible talk about and you can illustrate from your life. So someone says, well, Scott, you don't know what I've done. I want to remind you that this guy who wrote this book under the inspiration of the scripture, when he was in his 20s, remember we talked about this a few weeks ago, he was ambitious, not in a good way. There's godly ambition. He was not ambitious in a good way at all. He was a very arrogant young man. He had a bit of a vicious streak. He was an unloving young guy. And Jesus got a hold of his life. And we see John openly admitting these things about himself in Scripture. Jesus gets a hold of his life, redirects his life. And here he is towards the end of his life. And he is deeply investing in the upcoming generations. Older men, what does God, what, he, what is he calling you to? He is calling you to something. And it's time to step up if you're an older man. I'd like to pray for you for a couple of minutes. Kind Father, how I thank you for the gift of older men. Uh, each one of us as older men, Lord, uh, we need your help. We need your touch. We know that you love us, that you walk with us. You want to cleanse us where we need to be cleansed. You want to redirect us where we need to be redirected. You want us to stand in an honorable way in this culture. And treat women right and children right and young men right. These kinds of things. Admit it when we're wrong. And help show others a godly path. And model that path. A wise path. A responsible path. And so I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would fill these men with your spirit. And use them to make a difference every day and for eternity. In Jesus' name. Amen. Go ahead and, and have a seat. May it be so. Verses 14 to 17. He says, I want to warn you about three things. The first one is the evil one spoken about in verse 14. Then he warns us about the, the world, which is in parts of it is just in direct opposition to God. And then our own internal flesh. 
And so he says in verse 14, the evil one, sometimes called in Scripture Satan, he has many descriptive words of, about him in Scripture. He's called the deceiver. He's called the father of lies. He's called the accuser. He's a roaring lion. Many other things, all descriptive of his evil nature. Satan is a created being. He's a fallen angel, Scripture says. And this all took place before the world was created, before we came into being. And he, along with some of his companions, other angels, said, we can take God out and we can take over. And there's a certain type of cosmic battle that took place. And he lost completely, as did all his followers. In fact, in Luke chapter 10, Jesus said, I observed when they fell out of heaven. I watched them cascading out. And they lost the battle against God. And so he and his cohort lost completely. He continues in a stance of open rebellion against God, knowing that his final end is coming soon. Now, when we talk about this kind of stuff, some people think, well, you're, you're crazy or something like that, because they think there's no such thing as a supernatural realm. And they've got their eyes, their blinders on in life. And they don't realize that, yeah, what we see here is all going on, but there's a spiritual world at play it right now, right in this room that is taking place, even as we speak. And so this kind of thinking that there's no kind of spiritual realm going on is obviously completely in opposition to Scripture. Okay. There's a line in a movie, The Usual Suspects, that goes like this. The greatest lie that the devil ever told is that he didn't exist. And some people live in that kind of world. No, he exists. He exists, we're told, to steal, kill, and destroy. And he's powerful, very powerful, but defeated by God. And so there are times when you, as a follower of Jesus Christ, are under distress... And it could be that you have overlooked the fact that Satan and his minions or his demons actually exist and they're trying to attack you. Sometimes people will say, in fact, I had somebody say this to me in the last couple of weeks, not these exact words, but this is what they meant. They'll say, why is God doing this evil thing to me or letting this evil thing happen to me? And I, I had to just gently remind them. We talked about this a couple weeks ago in chapter 1, verse 5. It says, God is light, and in him there is absolutely no darkness. God is light. There's no evil in God. Okay. There is no darkness. And so I can say definitively to you, God is not doing evil to you. God is not an abusive father. And you may have been raised by an earthly father, a biological father that was abusive to you. And I'm, I am so sorry that that happened to you. That was wrong and is wrong. And they should be punished for that. But sometimes it makes us hard, to, hard for us to understand what our heavenly father is like. That he is a good, good father, like we sang about a few minutes ago. So God is not an abusive father. Having said that, do I understand personally everything that goes on in our world? I don't. 
But I do know this. Evil, horrific, traumatic things that may have happened to you are not from God. They are evil, and they have their beginnings in the evil one. So when you're hurting or suffering, that can be one of the causes. It also can be simply that life is profoundly unfair at points. It just really is. C.S. Lewis has written, he's one of the most brilliant minds in the 20th century. He wrote, we can err in two ways. We can make too much of Satan or too little. So other people will take another approach to this and they'll see Satan in everything that they do that's not quote-unquote right. And they use this as an excuse of, to advocate, abdicate rather their personal responsibility. And they, they don't want to admit the fact that God gives them the ability to choose. And we see that right in the opening pages of Scripture in Genesis 2 and 3. God says, I'm putting you guys in the perfectly perfect environment. Everything's available to you, but there's just one thing I don't want you to do. And so the evil one whispers to them and says, don't you want to be your own God? Don't you want to rebel against him? I tried to do it quite a while ago and I failed miserably. He didn't say this to them. I failed miserably, but why don't you give it a go? And so they rebelled against God, even though they're in the perfectly perfect environment, and they made the choice to do the one thing God said not to do. And so we understand from Scripture, it says there are powers, principalities, and spirits, but that we have authority over them in Jesus' name. And that we can renounce those attacks, we can take authority of those things, not based on what we do, but based solely on who Jesus is. And we can take authority and ask for those things to be removed and out of our life. But also remember... At times we make sinful choices. And thus comes the second warning. Loving, in verse 15, loving the world. And in verse 16, the cravings of the flesh. When he talks about our world, he's talking about things in this specific illustration here in verse 15. He's talking about those elements of our world that really are diametrically opposed to God. And so we're all aware that our culture is not neutral. There are parts of our culture that are very godly in its orientation, very healthy, almost, in fact, righteous in its orientation. But there's large swaths of our culture that are very, is very ungodly in its orientation. And each one of these are seeking to push us or mold us. And so he says in verse 15, I want you to be aware, and I'm warning you, there's parts of our culture that we need to just outright reject out of hand. Because they're worldly. They have an agenda diametrically opposed to God. So let me just give you some illustrations of kind of a kind of a way that cultures will talk different cultures and it doesn't mean it's indicative of everyone in that culture but in this culture or that culture sometimes these kinds of thoughts are are openly spoken about so in some cultures for example they'll say things like this we don't get divorces in our culture we just commit adultery this is how we do it 
And it's a generally understood thing. Not everyone does that. Not everyone believes that. But it's kind of, it's just kind of sign of the, some of the, the dialogue that's going on. And friends, you can never expect to stand before God one day and excuse sinful choices by saying, my culture made me do it. Then there's, let's take an example from this culture, the ungodly elements of this culture. The ungodly elements of this culture would suggest to you, you should live together before you get married, or you should have sex together before you get married, because you want to, quote unquote, try things out. Which, of course, if you know anything really about this stuff, it actually undermines the possibility of a healthy marriage and relationship. It erodes the trust that's integral in a healthy marriage and a healthy relationship. And the first thing you're doing by doing that is saying, I don't trust you or I don't trust me. And that creates a scar. Now, it's not impossible for God to redeem that situation, but it makes it much harder. And the thought that somehow this makes it better going into marriage, this is a lie from the evil one. This is one of the reasons God says very clearly, I love you. I want what's best for you. I know better than you. Do not sin in this way. My own heritage, my own lineage would suggest you've got to be frugal. You've got to be cheap. Don't be generous which is such not a good way to live life. Certainly be careful with money, be wise, but one of the greatest joys of life is being a generous, giving person. And when you miss out on that, you miss out on some of the greatest joys in life. Parts of the culture we come from or that has shaped us invites us away from Jesus. So when we give our life to Jesus, we're going to just abandon some of those elements of the culture because we are now, as followers of Jesus, we're called to model kingdom culture. Citizens of heaven, scripture says. I'm proud to be a Canadian, but ultimately I'm a citizen of heaven, which is so much better. And kingdom culture is for every culture. There's this beautiful image in the last book of the Bible in chapter 5 where it says in heaven, gathered around the throne of God will be every tribe, every language, every nation, every people group. And the impression there is every culture. Kingdom culture rather than the world's culture. Then there's the flesh he warns about in verse 16. And he says to us, the devil, the evil one, and the external culture, these are external enemies trying to get at us. The flesh, the imagery here is of an internal enemy. This innate internal desire that longs for the ungodly. And this is why when you become a follower of Jesus, by his grace, not by anything you've done, he gives you a brand new nature. And our goal as we grow in Christ is to nourish those new desires. I was on the phone with my daughter and son-in-law last night, 
My daughter is a pastor up in Stetler on staff there at the church. She just led a 20-year-old young woman to Christ, and she said, it's just incredible the changes that Jesus is bringing in this young woman's life. Just different approach to life. And it was, you know, my daughter had some tears as she's sharing this story of how Jesus changed this young woman and is changing this young woman and how she approaches life. It's so welcoming what Jesus can do in a life. So when we become a follower of Jesus by our grace, new desires, new nature. Pleasure is not necessarily a bad thing. Don't think I'm saying that. Everything God created in this world is good. But sadly, we sometimes take a good thing and turn it into an ungodly thing and actually a self-destructive thing. There's a little expression that I came across. The more we are gratified, the less we are satisfied. Think about that. The more we are gratified, the less we are satisfied. This is what verse 16 is saying. And so absolutely true, these things about pornography, about alcoholism, about drug addiction, and I could give you a whole list of things. The more we are gratified, the less we are satisfied. And so God says, again, I love you. I want what's best for you. So don't do this because I am light and I know better than you. Verse 17 says, follow Jesus' example. You're actually, he's saying in verse 17, all this stuff that we give so much time and energy to, it's not bad stuff, but just remember, you're not taking any of it with you to heaven. And this is not just a timely word, it's a timeless word. In a culture that's just focused on things. It's not just a timely word, it's a timeless word. The real Jesus promises here in verse 17, you will, when you have a relationship with me and walk with me, you will live forever in a place where everything, and I mean everything, will be provided to you by God. Today's family meeting is over. Let's pray. And so, Father, how grateful we are for the opportunity to hear from your word. Uh, Man, it's just so practical. And we would pray as we dive deeply into your word, which we know that you call us to do. Would you, by your spirit, just, just really take it and make it personal in our life? And so, Father, we're grateful for that. We're grateful that you don't expect us to do this on our own. You empower us to do it. And as we go now, we go longing to honor you with our life, to live a life that reflects you well, because it's really the best way to do life. So we pray these things and we ask these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.